everything we do to ourselves, whether it's global warming or a nuclear catastrophe, whatever it is, it's, we've done it to ourselves. It's man-made. So the idea that what we are capable of doing to one another uh, and, and how ridiculous that would be was such an interesting theme. And I love the idea of talking about it. And then the pandemic hit and you realize it's also about our inability to communicate and to be home and to be with family and friends and the people we love. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director George Clooney's new sci-fi drama, The Midnight Sky. In this post-apocalyptic tale, a lonely scientist in the Arctic races to stop astronauts from returning home to Earth after a mysterious global catastrophe has occurred. In addition to The Midnight Sky, Mr. Clooney's directorial credits include the feature films Suburbicon, The Monuments Men, the Ides of March, Leatherheads, and Good Night and Good Luck. Mr. Clooney spoke with director Scott Cooper about filming The Midnight Sky in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hey, George. I suspect uh, maybe this is on. How are you, man? I think we might be on. I'm here in my bar slash bedroom slash live. I've given everything up to my children. Good. Well, I think as we all do. Right. I've lost my the, the bar is now a nursery, the dining room. My office is a playroom. So <laughs> here I am. The whole this is all I got. Uh, well, I love it, man. And, and, and if I'm not mistaken, I think you've done well in the beverage business. And I see some behind you. So it's a yeah, lovely, it's all, it's all lovely good. Well, it's so good to see you again, man. Uh, yeah, I've right. seen the film twice. I loved it. As you know, I think it's it's truly an, an impressive cinematic piece of filmmaking. I found it to be haunting and, and meditative and, and thrilling and, and very, very moving. And, and I watched it again last night for the, for the second time. And, and of course, even knowing what's coming, I found it to be even more moving. And, and maybe it's because we're moving deeper into the pandemic and yeah. An insurrection and everything else. But for, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, I certainly urge you to do so. But it's about this <clears throat> global catastrophe that's wiped out most of humanity, which renders Earth uh, uninhabitable. George plays an astrophysicist who lives in an outpost inside the Arctic Circle, who's in a race against time to help the crew of a spacecraft that's returning from one of Jupiter's moons to steer clear of Earth. Yeah. So, George, I, I don't want to sound reductive, but and I've actually heard you say this, uh, but it's Gravity meets The Revenant, which on their on their own are two very difficult films to make and, and really aren't natural fits that need a lot of balancing out, which you did superbly. Was that when you read the screenplay or was this as you were making, you felt like, ah, this is what this ultimately no, the screenplay really ironed it all out from the very beginning. You know, I read Mark's screenplay. He's a wonderful writer. You wrote The Revenant, actually. And, and when, you're, when you're reading it, you just feel like the movies, um, you know, the, the story really naturally blends, which, it, as you said, isn't a natural fit. But there wasn't, a, there wasn't really a... The only thing was about how often you go back and forth. You know, that's sort of editorially you have to play around with. Yes. But, uh, because you don't want to stay with one group too long. But in another, in another sense, you kind of have to stay with one group for a period of time. And No question. So it was about sort of finding that um, that balance, but the script had all of it in it. He's a just a terrific writer, you know. Well, so the film is set in in the very near future. Is it twenty forty nine? Is that what it is? Yeah. In the very near yeah. future. 
but the themes are, are so current. I mean, yeah. for me, it's about a couple of things. I mean, you know, I felt this sense of regret over the choices that we make in our lives, certainly with, and this is a spoiler alert, um, but for the, uh, particularly the abandonment of a daughter, but also about our kind of desperate need to, to be home with the people we love and connect with them, which, which watching it again last night, I was like, Jesus Christ. I mean, this could not have been more uh, relevant. It, 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 were those the things that you were considering when you were making it? Well, I was, I wasn't, you know, it's funny, obviously there wasn't a pandemic and, uh, and unfortunately that makes it more timely, but um, I was dealing with the idea of regret because clearly this is about, you know, regret. I know people in my life, people who are friends of my older folks, older than me, uh, who live with regret. I should have done this. I should have tried this. Oh, I yeah. should have. And it's a cancer in them. It makes them bitter. The older they get, the angrier they are at, their, at themselves and that the clock is running out. Regret's a really uh, a dangerous, horrible thing. And so dealing with the, the, the desperate need for some form of redemption was the overarching theme for my character. Mm. But there was also this other piece, which was at the time that we are capable, everything we do to ourselves, whether it's global warming or a nuclear catastrophe, having grown up in the 60s and 70s, that was the possibility then. Mm. Whatever it is, it's, we've done it to ourselves. It's man-made. And so the idea that what we are capable of doing to one another uh, and, and how ridiculous that would be was such an interesting theme. And I love the idea of talking about it. And then the pandemic hit and you realize it's also about our inability to communicate and to be home and to be with family and friends and the people we love. And, you know, those, those VR moments where, you know, Kyle is there with his family or Tiffany's there with her mm -hmm. sister, you know, those end up having a very different vibe than they did when we shot them. Man, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable how, how, you know, so often when I'm making a film, I really don't quite know what it's about until I'm actually making it. I mean, I have an idea, yeah. but, but when you, you have a piece of material like this, where the themes um, at any time are really relevant, but then take on that, that extra bit of relevance. Now it's, it's, it just makes it that much more moving. I mean, look, well, George, you, you know, you've directed what seven films and, and can make any film that you want. Mm -hmm. You're also a wonderful writer. Um, I'd heard that that you had that you had read hundreds of scripts. I mean, how did you find this material? Well, I, I talked to Brian Lord. The other day, and he said that that year I read, you know, 80 scripts to direct. And I have to say, you're always sort of surprised. And I think there, there's a lot of directors watching this. And I think they would also feel the same way where you go. I can't believe you're going to make this into a movie because so often you just go. It just doesn't have if you're going to spend a year and a half out of your life every day. You want to work on stuff you can work on if you get to choose. Now, listen, I've been in the position where you don't get to choose. You take what you can get and uh, as an actor, certainly. And then it's just, hey, take your job. But if you're in the position where you get to choose, you know, this one uh, felt like uh, I was willing to spend that time working on the film for, you know, almost two years. And that's, a, you know, that that's you know, that, that doesn't happen that often, you know, no. you have to read it and it's, and you know, what it's like, Scott, you just, you, you suddenly it, it hits your ear and you go, I know exactly how this story should be told. So were you, were you a quarter of the way through the script, halfway through the script, or as soon as you, you read the final page, you were like, I got to direct this. Well, you know, what's funny is 
in general, you can, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have done this. You know, you start reading a script and about 10 pages in, you can tell whether or not this oh. script is, you know, anywhere near the kind of story that you'd like to be involved in. And usually it's about, um, uh, you know, just, just about the, the point of view and the, and the, you know, the, the, the direction that the film wants to go. And then oftentimes about dialogue, but, uh, so when I started reading, I thought, well, this is interesting. And then by the time I got to the end with it being, you know, with it, because I kept thinking, how are you going to get to anything? You know, otherwise it's kind of on the beach, right? Otherwise it's on the beach, which is, which is in, the dies in the end and there's no hope and it's nihilistic. And I thought you have to have, there has to be something to take away from this. And they had it, which was that he got, you know, he's, yeah, he's saving mankind, but he's saving his daughter. And mm. so, I, I always thought that that in some ways, uh, you know, that gave you the redemption. And the minute I finished that, I, I thought, oh, I, I know how to tell this story. And well, so you're, if, if you're, you're, your children are three, um, <laughs> I suspect you read this when, after they were born, right? Mm -hmm. so it took on even more relevance. Sure. Is that right? Well, it does. I mean, everything sort of- before? It, it changes once you have kids in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, you're also, you know, feel the pressure to do a, you know, a Sesame Street, but, you know, that's the other part. But you do, you know, because, you know, you're going to be leaving, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy having young kids. And so leaving the house and being away from the kids is hard. You know, it's a hard thing to do. So it has to be something that really drives you and says, okay, now this is one, let's, uh, Let's all pack up and go to London and shoot and Iceland and shoot, that kind of thing. Well, look, it's it's been, what, four, almost five years since you were last on screen? Yeah. I, mean, I loved Hail Caesar. Was that it? Was that your last? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I, yeah, maybe. I think uh, so. But it's, yeah, it's been a while. I sort of, uh, you know, I, it was funny. I couldn't find a project. You know, I've, things have changed for me, obviously. I'm, I'll be 60 this year. And so... The parts change, right? And the kind of parts you get change. And you have to accept that. You can't fight it and say, let's you know, get a softer lens and try to do, you know. Somebody asked me the other day, is this the kind of thing you're headed towards? Are you trying to aim towards this instead of like out of, out of sight? And I was like, not that I want to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, age has forced the me. Glamorous to leading man. Yeah. And out of sight. I love that film. Yeah, that's a but good look, I, I have to say, I mean, four years, five years, it, as soon as you came on screen, I mean, for me, it was like slipping into a pair of like favorite shoes. I mean, <laughs> I could literally feel myself relax and say, Jesus, how much have I missed George uh, well, on screen? And, and, you, and you seemed uh, thinner, which I, I would assume maybe you lost weight for the part. But were you always going to start in the film? Yeah, um, it was an interesting thing. You know, you look at it and you go, OK, this is a, you know, it's almost, it was like a, you know, $95 million. It's not cheap, you know, it's a yes. big film. And in general, for a film like that, you got to have a name, you know? And yeah. you look at the names, I'm about, the, you know, I'm about the right age and there aren't, there weren't that many people that were the right person that could do this, you mm -hmm. know? There were only a few. And so in a way, I, you know, I felt like, well, this is, and it's, and it's a fairly, it's sort of in my wheelhouse, of, of the kind of thing to play. And so I thought, well, I know how to do this and I'm probably the right guy to play it. I have to say, you know, it's not fun directing yourself, right? It's not a fun thing to do, but, uh, but you know, I felt like if I could, if I could, and we designed it so that you shoot all my stuff first, 
mm-hmm. and then go on to do the space stuff afterwards. It would give me the ability to really focus. Because the space stuff you got to focus on. There's okay. no, there's no screwing around. I want to get into that. Yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 what your seventh film, and 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 very different film for you. I mean, it, it's one thing to be, you know, good night and good luck, which is which is, you know, largely performance. But but here we have space travel. We have zero gravity. You have very complex visual effects. Yeah. Previs, I mean, remarkable scope. Yeah. You know, directing and starring in a film like that is is about as difficult as it gets. I mean, was did you find yourself ever either in prep or midway through where you were saying, "Jesus, what have I got myself into?" Every day. I mean, I remember in the old days acting in a play. And my cousin Miguel and I would were doing theater and great actor, loved him. He was such a good actor, and and we were oh, backstage, man. and I was we'd be standing there, and we both start going like this, like we start hitting ourselves in the chest, like this, <laughs> like why the f- did we say yes just before opening night? You know, like, why the f- did we say yes? You know, what are we thinking? Why do we put ourselves in this situation? And I think I think every director at some point has that moment where they like go, I didn't, you know what? Why did I do this? You know, but. I have to say, because we had such great professionals around us mm. and people I trusted and knew, we, you know, there wasn't any major hiccups. We had surprises, you know, Felicity being pregnant when we were in the middle of shooting was a surprise, you know? And, and so you had to be able to bounce with, the, with that information. You had to be able to, it's like doing improv, you know, it's like, yes, and. So, yes, she's pregnant. So what are you going to do about it? And so there were those, there were those kind of things, but overall it was, you know, we didn't have a lot of hiccups, which was lucky. You know, we finished ahead of schedule and the little well, girl- like this has to be so meticulously planned. Yeah. Like, which the, I know you've told me before you're a, you're an inveterate, uh, methodical yeah, I like people, I, the Coen brothers were sort of, and Soderbergh, but the Coen brothers would do, you know, they would do a uh, uh, storyboards for every single shot in every scene. And then the actors would get them. And I, and I used their same storyboard artist, uh, J Todd Anderson. And we would, uh, we draw out every single scene and every, every single shot in every single scene. So the crew, and then you get it with the sides in the morning. So everybody knows where the camera's going to be we're shooting. We're, we're, you know, we're going to shoot these, these, this, this, and this now out on the ice, some of that changed because weather would come and go and we'd have to mix it up. But the, you know, we knew, okay, this is the shot. We're going to use these untuned lenses on. This is a, so everything was very specifically designed uh, before we started. Jesus. Well, one of the many things that I loved was, was your decision to keep the catastrophe at its heart, a mystery. Was that scripted or was that a choice that you and Stephen Marioni, who, by the way, I love personally and also as as an editor. It wasn't wasn't in the script. We didn't explain it in the script. And I actually think, you know, there's certain times in, in filmmaking where your imagination is a lot better than than what the truth would be, what the actual, you know, uh, if you read Interview with a Vampire and it says and blood flowed like a river, it's much more interesting than seeing a river of blood. <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah. You know, I, I remember doing uh, Ides of March and we had this scene where I'm playing the governor running for president and I'm going to fire Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And we shot the scene specifically and it's a, you know, it took balls to do it because we committed to it. You have to commit to it. But I go, okay, can I talk to you for a minute? And he comes and he gets in the car and then we just push in on the car for, you know. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Seconds. You never see what I say to him and then he gets out and we leave and you know, he's been fired. And, you know, Phil and I talked about it for a long time. And I just said, you know, I think that, that the, um, 
you know, the most interesting thing of this is, you know, that everyone can imagine what the scene is. And if, if we did it, it would be less powerful, you know? And so it's a really good point. I like, I like the idea of trusting the audience to, you know, make their own decisions. We had that with Syriana, which is not a real country, you know, Syriana. So we we were like, well, if you don't explain it, then it doesn't matter. You know? Yeah. Well, I I mean, look, I I love films like this or, or Solaris, Soderbergh or um, Tarkovsky's version where, you know, where the dialogue is either non-existent or whittled to the core. And it felt like you only express things here that were absolutely necessary to express. And you left so much to the audience to really interpret. And I, and we let, and we let Alexander Desplat's score tell the story. Uh, yeah. I want to get to that. I love, you, you, you know, that's the trick is sometimes you have to go, okay, well, the score will tell you, you know, yes. and, and yes. Alexander's, you know, that whole last section, the last like seven minutes um, where, you know, she tells me she's my daughter and then I go out and I hold and the little girl holds my hand and oh. all that stuff. We we cut that to Debussy's uh, Claire de Lume. Right. And so oh. that's a masterpiece, you know, and then I said it to Alexander Desplat and said, <laughs> OK, do that. French composer. He's like, great. Thanks, George. And he's like, oh, Debussy. And, uh, and so he had to do it. And so, you know, you, when you hire and work with the best people, they can, you know, oftentimes save you in situations. Well, I'll say, look, uh, I, I've never loved Netflix more than I do now. Certainly during the um, pandemic, they've kept me sane and entertained. But it must be said that if there's ever a film that should be seen on the biggest screen one can possibly find yeah. at the DGA or at the Academy with perfect uh, lighting, perfect sound, it's yeah. got to be this one. This would be, we saw it one time. We went, we rented out the, the village in Westwood and oh. we went over there to see it just after we finished because I wanted to, you know, we hadn't seen it on a big screen and digitally we wanted to make sure all of our effects looked good on a big screen, you know? And we went there and it was wild. They opened up the door and they, they hadn't been there since March, the, the, the people at the cinema. And they opened it up and there was kiosks with posters of, um, of A Quiet Place 2. Because they uh, the premiere yeah. and, the, and they hadn't, and then the movie didn't come out, and all. So it was just like a Twilight Zone episode, wow. but we got to see it on a big screen with big sound. And man, you know, it was. It, it's disappointing that we didn't. We shot it on sixty five. You know, but, I mean, it looks every bit of it. And I mean, look, George, there are a lot of more important problems in the world, right? Pandemic and suffering and insurrection, but. That's small potatoes, but I still would have, and I hope someday to be able to see this on a big well, screen. Maybe we will. You know, you never know. Um, uh, it did so well on Netflix, which was, you know. Um, well, remarkably, like, like 70 million people saw it in one week or something? More than that, because it's 70 million households, which is in, in the first week. And that's, you know, they, they figure at least two people a household. So, you know, it ended up being a big number and, and a huge number watch it all the way through, which is also, you know, they didn't watch it for a minute which is sure you know the that's the other thing where they just tune in for a second and go no, no i don't want to see it so, oh, so they give you uh how analytics of, of how many people yeah, watched got, it, yeah. how long they were watching it wow yeah yeah they know everything they got they've got us netflix they well are. yes they do <laughs> let's 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 discuss your relationship with martin rue and his cinematography which yeah. is astounding I mean, the images are so clean they're so superbly composed what was the discussion about point of view, the visual grammar, when to employ handheld, something dynamic, classic tableau. Yeah, well, there was there were sort of all of those in a weird way. You know, Martin is, first of all, Martin is really a, sort of an unsung hero in the in the in cinematography world. He is 
an incredible artist and he works really fast, which is helpful when you're trying to, you know, particularly when you're in Iceland shooting in, you know, 70 mile an hour winds and stuff. Um, we knew that in Iceland out when we were shooting in Iceland, we were going to be sort of moving quickly. So there wasn't often a lot of that was handheld. Mm, yeah. Um, and it's hard because it's a camera for handheld live in, in that wind is hard. Yeah. Um, but we also knew that it had to have that kind of scope. You know, you really need that for this for this film. And then, you know, we had, there was a lot of designs about, you know, Martin was using these untuned lenses in certain shots so that, you know, if you and I were standing next to each other on the same plane, you'd be out of focus and I'd be in focus. So they're really interesting. And what it did, it brought, you know, the, um, the audience into that person's head, you know, in a way like, uh, like in all that jazz, when, when, um, Roy Scheider breaks the pencil and you just kind of get into his world for a second as he's watching the, the, uh, the, them do a table read, uh, that you, that you're able to make it, uh, you know, subjective in a way. And, and so we really focused on using that specifically in very specific spots. And then, um, and then it was about, uh, composition and how we wanted the, the, you know, where we, you know, like for instance, we did a previous, of course you do on all of the space stuff, the spacewalk and things like that. But it's pretty interesting now the way the world works. You know, they do it, a, a digital previous, and then you've got a, you know, you've got your VR goggles on and you've got a camera uh, in your hands and you're walking through an empty gymnasium, but you're actually walking on the outside of the spaceship. And so you can go like this and go, okay, there's my angle I want. So it's literally like you're walking, it's like a location yeah. scout. Wow. And you're going, okay, that's my angle for this. And then you go down this way. You go, and if I look back here, I can see the rotating arm. So let's have her there. And so you're able to do that. And then they record those pieces and then they build the sets and previous it. So, you know. Well, look, you and, and Alfonso on Gravity, Alfonso Coron, I oh. mean, doing that anti, that, that stuff, which is so incredibly difficult, not knowing what's up, what's down, was so superbly done. But, but I'll get to that. Let me ask you, did you and Martin always want to shoot digitally 65 Alexa, or did you ever consider film? <clears throat> yeah, we didn't consider film on this one because there was, it was so effects heavy. Yeah. And we Seems the right choice, obviously. And we, and we were going to do, you know, and you know, I shot most of my films on, on film. Yeah. Um, but digital on this one, also we had a quick turnaround, you know, we wrapped in uh, like you know, March 1st, basically end the end of February. And it was going to have to come out in, you know, at the time before there was a pandemic, it was supposed to be coming out in early November. As <laughs> it's going to be released on uh, movie screens for sure. yeah. four weeks and then on to, and then to Netflix. So, you know, that's a fast turnaround for, you know, that many effect shots, which is a huge amount of effect shots. And we knew we needed the time to be able to do it. So digital just made sense. You know, we've and I've shot digitally the last three things. Uh, Catch twenty two, we shot digitally as well. And, which Martin shot right, which was which is yeah. uh, beautiful. And Kyle Chandler. Um, in terms of um, your cast, I mean, look, they're yeah. exceptional cast. Felicity Jones, David Oyelowo, whom I love, Daniel yeah. Bashir, Kyle, um, Tiffany Boone, who's fantastic. Yeah. And then you share the screen with with your yeah. character with only one other actor apart from the plane crash. Yeah. Um, who's this luminescent seven-year-old Kaylin, what, Springhall? And making her screen debut, yeah? Yes, never acted before. Uh, honestly, the truth of the matter is when you, you get the kids that young, in a way you don't want anyone who's a pro. 
because they're a little oh, too yeah. professional. You know what I mean? They've, they've been basically coached by their parents into being very professional. Well, I, I've used a lot of child actors, I know. Well, I would play the pediatrician on ER, so I would, they're constantly, the mom would be like, tell him what you did. And he's like, I just did a movie with Robert De Niro. And I was like, Wait. <laughs> um, but well. she, up and she was just, she had this hypnotic look and, you know, honestly, you know, you budget when you're, when you're doing the, the budget for a film, you budget for the little girl to mess it up, you know, to, sure, to of course. schedule harder because first of all, you, you only have a few hours to work with her, but also that, you know, if she melts down for some reason or if she can't get it right, or you don't get her to do what you need. And I think she probably knocked two or three days off of our schedule because she would do everything in one or two takes. Well, I mean, she's wonderfully expressive. And, and what's interesting is even for very skilled actors, playing fear, playing that you're, you're afraid of something is not yeah. easy to do. Fear is hard, man. And, and, you know, it's a funny thing. It's one of the harder things for actors to do. Yes. And yeah. I said to her, give me your scared, scared face. And she's like, <gasps> and I was like, yes, that's exactly right. And then I talked to David and all those guys later. And after we finished it, I said, yeah, she did that in one take. So go, guys. Let's. <laughs> well, I mean, I always found that she was always listening to you. And, and certainly in, in those chess scenes, right, mm -hmm. where, um, where she's just reacting off of you, but she's totally keyed in and locked into everything you're saying. And as you know, the most important thing as an actor listening. does is listens. Yeah. And I thought... That was sort of the magical thing about her was, you know, she, she was a little girl. She played and jumped and danced and did all kinds of funny things that you say action. And she just be completely still and still is hard oh, because, yeah. you know, kids are always moving around and she was completely centered and still and made it honestly, again, you know, you get lifted up by the people you work with and she really made our lives easy. You know? Well, and you know, George, you, you're also a father and, and, and the way you react uh, and, and with your children probably also helped in, in, in some way. Certainly helped. I, you know, I, I also, like I said, I was a pediatrician on ER, so I yeah. five years worked with kid actors. So you learn a lot of, you know, you learn a lot of tricks. I didn't have to use any of them here, strangely enough. It was, it was really, you know, it was like working with a, you know, a grown actor. She was, of course, she was yeah. You know, I always find that, that shooting on location always really helps kind of imbue the film with a, a sense of place and a sense of authenticity. And, and you shot the exteriors in Iceland. Was that always where you were going to shoot uh, those particular scenes? Did you, did you look other places? And no, we didn't look anywhere else. We, we knew Iceland had a bit of a history of, of, of uh, people shooting there. Yeah. There was a, a glaciers that we could get to. Uh, you had to drive out for about, it was about an hour from where, at the foot of the hill where we were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, it's really interesting when you get to Iceland and you see how much these giant glaciers have melted away over the right. last... 10 years. And anyone who wants to talk about global warming being a hoax and all that, go to the places that are on the front lines, go to the Maldives where they're sinking because of the raising, rising water or go to Iceland where these giant glaciers are disappearing. And to them, there's no, there's no question about the science. So we got there, we went out on the, we go out on and we built some, some pieces out in the ice, which was tricky. And then it was, pieces. Uh, like the the, uh, the 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 very the exterior of the exterior of the thing, but not the whole exterior, obviously. Right, of course, yeah. But you had to have stuff that I could walk down the stairs. And yes, yeah. So we built some of those out there, um, and then we put those big pods outside, and put part of the plane outside, uh, out on the glaciers. So 
you know, it was a big, you know, there was a big production in a way of getting there. And then you got to wait for, you know, crappy weather. And so we would, you know, you'd see this wall coming like a sandstorm coming towards you. Wow. And like when you see the stuff with me walking with the little girl, it's, it's not uh, snow. It was perfectly clear, beautiful day. You could see for a hundred miles, but then the wind would come in and you'd see it coming right towards you like this. And you go, everybody, and we're tied down. We've got, you know, we're tied to each other. So you can't get lost with a cameraman and a little girl. And then here it comes. So we go, here we go. Ready and rolling. And then you just get pounded and you can't see anything for about, you know, seven minutes. And then, you know, and then it goes away and then it's perfectly clear again. So it was about waiting for those gusts of wind. You know? How did she handle that the first time? She was cool. She's from Ireland, man. You know, she could take. <laughs> of course, that's like a, just, it's like a Friday night yeah. for them. You know? Yes. No, I mean, those ice storms were incredibly believable. I mean, really, yeah, well, really harrowing. We did have to, you know, there were two pieces in that sequence where we lose a little girl that we had to match it digitally because we didn't get two shots. We, the, the wind stopped. And, uh, and our effects guys did an amazing job where I think it's really seamless. You can't tell. Oh, you would never know. I've, and I've, well, I've seen the film twice and I, I never once even considered that. No. Yeah. Um, where did you shoot your stage work and where did you shoot the stuff with when you were younger with Gregory Peck's uh, grandson? Uh, we shot that in London and we shot and in Spain um, in, in the, in, in um, well, like Canary Islands or no. Canary Islands. And then we shot, and the rest of we shot at Shepparton in, in London, yeah. and yeah. Uh, which I've worked at before. It's a great spot and, and was really, I mean, that was, it's funny. Iceland was tricky because we're all covered up like Kenny in South Park, you know, so nobody could see anybody, and, you know, so you, and it was, we just started there. So we didn't really get, you didn't get a chance to get to know everybody yet. You know? And then we went to London after that. We were there for three weeks in Iceland. And then we went to London after that. And then it was like, oh, there's the crew. There's the people. And I could, because you couldn't tell who was who, you know, when you're shooting. That's remarkable. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, is it, is it Bissell? Jim Bissell? Bissell? Bissell. Bissell. Yeah. His production design is so, I mean, it beautifully simulates what, is a near world future. I mean, did you know, he's really, he's such a smart cat and, you know, he got nominated for uh, good night and good luck, which is the lowest budget film for a production designer ever to get. Wow. And he, he, his first, I don't know if his first film, but one of his first films was ET. So he's been doing it a while. Jesus. You know? Well, but and did he employ like a futurist to help with the design or talk, to, talk, NASA to, or? talk to some NASA people? He did talk to some, uh, some you know, because, Basically, a lot of this is as if a, a 3D printer was making the, the the spaceship in a way. And so there was an endo and an exoskeleton with a sort of a Kevlar breathable to make it lighter weight. Not that you need lightweight in space, but you need lightweight to get it to space. And uh, and so it was really sort of a fascinating, you know, the process of him putting that ship together. And, you know, it's. I don't know, hundreds of meetings between us with him going, well, what do you think about this? And we go, well, maybe. You know, you have to use a couple of the, the 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 cheats that have been used and have been employed in space films for the last 15 or 20 years, which is that rotating false gravity arm. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, but then you have to build it out so that you can, you know, so that it's believable. And Jim had a really interesting take on uh, on how that ship, what the ship should look like. And, uh, you know, he's just 
he's just truly one of the best in the business and a great, a good friend and a great guy. Well, it was also seamless and you never felt like it was taking you much like with Martin's uh, uh, photography that it ever took you out of the narrative. It just all felt really right. Yeah. He's, that's a testament obviously to a, a great deal of skill. Let's talk about um, your work, long time uh, collaboration with Steven Marioni. It feels like every time I would call Steven to see what he's doing is either doing something with you or with uh, Alejandro. Yeah. Um, and he's always been so gracious with me, uh, taking a look at my scripts or writing me notes after he sees my films or looking at cuts. I mean, he's such a wonderful, has a, such a wonderful cinematic mind. What's your relationship with, with him? We're pals, you know, I mean, if you think about it, uh, most of the films I've done, you know, I would, we would be cutting it in Lake Como, right? We'd finish in oh my God. <laughs> May and he'd come to Lake Como and, and live with me at the house for, you know, three and a half months while we cut, we set an abbot up there. And so, you know, he's like family, <laughs> you know, he comes, he's at dinner every night with my wife and myself. And, um, and then we also did it, we cut in England. So um, because I didn't want to do any reshoots because I knew, you know, about time constraints, I also knew I wasn't going to be able to carry that beard on forever. Mm. Um, I, I wanted to make sure we got everything. So I would cut every night. So I would shoot mostly about eight hour days, nine hour days. Oh, and, I'm sure the cast loved that, cast and crew. Oh, they loved it. Yeah. And then, but we were really prepared. We only shot what we used, you know, we don't, I didn't cover stuff that I didn't want to cover. Sure. And, yeah. and then we got to the editing room. I would go from there back to the editing room and Stephen and I would cut for a couple of hours uh, every night. So I knew we had every scene, you know, put together. I knew what we had so that I wouldn't have to go back and go, well, I missed this shot or I missed you know, we, we'd be able to do that while we were shooting. Well, in terms of the structure of the screenplay of when we're in your point of view or when we're away with David and Felicity, um, how close to the original screenplay was that? Or was that something that you and Stephen just played with throughout editorial? Um, editorially, we messed with it a little bit. You know, we made some things a little nonlinear. Uh, we thought like the openings always started really with the helicopter sequence and then went into me inside. And we always felt like it could start with me inside and then move in and out and kind of yes. go back. Yeah, yeah. Um, we played a lot around with pieces. I think everybody, that you do this, I do it. You know, you get into the editing room, you go, I think we could change the change when the, you know, when this montage plays or change when. So you, you do a little bit of that. But, you know, the, the thing about, you know, Stephen also is, you know, he's just got a really good ear. And, and oh, so he would so cut good. while I'm shooting and then I'd come in and he'd go, how about this? And you'd look at it and you'd go, great. Well, you know, it's, these are the takes you like. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really helpful to work the day after, to cut the day after. Um, and mostly that's by my lack of uh, confidence in, in getting everything I need. You know, I want to make sure I got everything I need. So well, what would he, would he ever text you or, or call and say, hey, I, you know, you're missing this shot or how about this? Yeah, th th yeah, it's happened a couple of times in the seven films we've done together. There's been a couple of times where he's written me or texted me and said, you know, um, I think you, you've missed a, an angle here and we don't have a way to cut. And, yeah. Um, but mostly it's just about for him, it'll just be about, well, because, you know, you don't really see the dailies until the next day. And so we're cutting off of the, you know, sort of a digital version of it. And sometimes you need to see if you got if you got everything you needed, you know, if you got the, if it, if it's, 
out of focus or yeah, of course, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Alexandre Desplat. I mean, was he, uh, was he seeing footage? Did you send him the screenplay first? Did he not come on until uh, the picture was finished, essentially? Yeah. I, I always send him the screenplay first. Um, and then I said to him when we did it, when we were about to shoot it, I said, look, this is going to be more music than you've ever written for a movie because there's, you know, there's not much canvas to score. Yeah. And there's not, there's just not much dialogue. So, you know, it's going to require it um, you, to, we're going to have to have it through, throughout the, the film. He goes, okay, great. And then uh, after I did, I had a first cut of the film a week after we wrapped um, and I sent it to him so that he had some, it was, it was very different than what we finished with, but it was a, an assembly of the film so that he was able to start thinking about it. And then uh, he started sending me pieces of music that he liked, that he'd written, and we'd, you know, figure out where they might play and what, how they might work. And then starting in, uh, starting this summer, starting in like June, he started to really hone in on, on uh, the score itself. And then, you know, it was really interesting in pandemic world. Yeah. Because everything's tricky, but scoring really tricky because well, because he's not in he's not in there with his his uh composing no so he's you know he's basically conducting via zoom he, uh the, the the orchestra which he's in paris there in london at abbey road and i'm in england at five in the morning here with like two different zoom uh pieces going on and and because it's a 150 piece orchestra but they can only do about 15 musicians at a time because they have to spread them out so yeah. far just do like a piece of the strings and you know i have a pretty good ear i grew up in, around the music industry my aunt was a big singer so i have a fairly good ear with music but you still can't tell if you know without hearing the percussions or without hearing the horns if if this works so you had to layer it on top of layer it on top of layer it on top of layer it, and then mix it and then play it back and go yes that's it um, sometimes you could adjust things in the mix, but sometimes it was, you know, I mean, and Alexander, you know, mostly it was him saying, trust me and me going, I do, you know, and, and, and we got there, but it, it was a really tedious process. But frustrating for him and probably also for you, right? Just yeah. in terms of the entire That's frustrating pandemic. for him because <laughs> he has every understanding of how it's going to sound when it's all mixed together. And more frustrating for me, at least by, from him, he would say, this is going to be frustrating for you. And I said, okay. And so I wasn't really frustrated, but uh, it is a thing of going, okay, I think that's it. I think that's right. And then him saying, right. wait, wait till you hear the, you know, the horns in this with this. So. It's exquisite, the score. I mean, yeah, he, he, I mean, regardless pandemic post, I mean, it's really, really. He knocked it out of the park. He's a, oh, Jesus, man. Well, but you know, he's just one of the best. You know, yes. one of the best. Well, I mean, look, George, at your collaborators. I mean, from Martin to Jim to him yeah, to your yeah. cast. And I have to give out a, a shout out to your wonderful costume designer, Jenny Egan, Jenny. who uh, costumed this Western. You know, Jenny at all? Have you ever worked with her? She's like, she's, first of all, she's the funniest person you've ever met. And, oh, I love it. You know, and we later, we put her into like a really tricky position. We didn't have a whole lot of time to build these suits, these space mm -hmm. suits. And, uh, and, and she wanted to do something, you know, unique and it's hard to be unique in a spacesuit. And so she really yeah, she was, and she, and she did such a beautiful job with them. And, 
you know, all of that is, it's sort of that, again, that unsung thing of, you know, uh, uh, she does all of this work with this sort of lighting on in the suits and building all these things, but people have to be able to wear them too. You know? Well, look, it's, it's one thing to, to design a period Western with, you know, Christian Bale and Rosamund Pike and West Studi, where you really see her work. But to your point, being unsung with uh, something that feels contemporary, I yeah. mean, that's, that's, I find actually more difficult. Yeah. To get right. And then her choice of like the burnt orange coat, your coat, yeah. irises. I mean, really just, it, I think was really beautifully done. And so often people don't realize how hard of a job that is. And I think she did. Well, great she job. has a, she has an incredibly, you know, it's an incredibly difficult job because, you know, she's got all of these people working in this, in this, in this sort of uh, shop over there at Shepparton, but you know, she's sort of isolated and then we'd go over and she'd go, what do you think? And you'd look at it and go, great. And then you'd go back and then, then they go to work for weeks building these things, you know? And so it's a, it's, and you know, all of that stuff is tricky. It's, it takes, you know, it, it, it's a harder, it's harder than I think people understand for, I mean, not anybody on this uh, Zoom, but people, you know, a lot of people won't, will look at that and just think, oh, well, they just made a spacesuit. Yeah, for sure. No, it's beautiful. Let's let's talk about. I mean, look for such a wonderful actor as you are. Talk about how you direct actors, knowing that you've probably been directed by either jerk directors or directors who are too meddlesome. Um, how do you generally direct? And then also, in, in well, I, I say I will say this. First thing is cast the right people in the right parts. That's yeah. the, about ninety eight percent of the job is casting the right people in the right jobs. Because you know, you if you're the right person in the job. Um, then there's very little you have to do, right? There's, mm. if the right person does it, if, you know, Kyle playing, uh, the, the parts for Kyle and for Demian were written much younger. They were like 28-year-old guys. One of them was a Russian guy. And I thought, well, for them to be going home at the end and wanting to go home at the end, they have to be older. There, right. has, to be some, there has to be some, you know, some gravitas to it. And I said to him, you know, by the time they do the, the, the Sweet Caroline scene, I said, I want you guys to be the grumpy old men in the balcony and the Muppets. <laughs> you know, I want you two to be the, <laughs> you know, kind of guys. And so you hire those two actors who are such wonderful actors and you point them in the right direction going, I think it's going to be this kind of a scene. And then you let them alone. You know, um, the main thing about directing professional actors is, um, you know, just point, just show them the direction you're aiming and then, you know, let them do it. And if, the, and if, you know, and if you're off somehow, then go, let's try it again and aim more that way. But I remember like Soderbergh would say to me as an actor, you go like, you know, about uh 17% more existential dread. <laughs> and we'd start laughing. Because the, the truth of the matter is, you know, I, I, as an actor, I like things like this, speed it up. Like, twice as fast. I mean, I love that kind of direction because then you go, okay, got it. And scenes work so much better usually when they're sped up. And, you know, just, and Joel and Ethan would do the same thing, you know. I remember Joel, my very first shot, very first time working with them was on Oh Brother, Where Are You? Brother, yeah. And it's a scene where I'm eating corn and uh, and uh, uh, J John Goodman is there and he's going to club me in the head with a club and, and Tim Blake Nelson is sitting on the ground. And it was my first shot and i was nervous working with the cohen brothers because they're who wouldn't be and i'm playing everett mcgee and i'm playing him like a moron you know and 
Uh, and then we do the first take and then I did another take and then Joel comes over and goes, yeah, you know, here's the thing. You're the smartest guy in every room you walk into. I was like, oh, because that's, of course, the dumbest people in the world think they're smart, you know, and uh, and from that moment on, it was so easy to be like, well, apparently you fellas don't know what you, you know, and it changed everything. And it was such a simple turn of events. He didn't say do it like this or sure. didn't break it down into that's a great piece of direction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so really simple stuff. If you hire the right actors, though, I mean, honestly, almost I, I've almost always I've worked with directors who try to micromanage every word. Oh, Jesus. And, you know, you want to kill them. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, you just want to go, what's wrong with you? I remember I, would, I did a director's roundtable. I guess it was for uh, uh, Good Hollywood Night. Hollywood Reporter. Yeah, but it was like Good Night and Good Luck, I think, because there was a, you know, a director there who was like, I like to break the actors. I like to do 40 takes until oh. And I'm watching it I'm on the director's table, but I'm looking at it like an actor. And I'm like, I'm never going to work with this Never. Guy. That's the last thing you do, George. Are you kidding? Yeah, I know. It's funny. I mean, some people work that way. And, but I, I, you know, I have the sort of, I'm never going to work with people like that as an actor. No. Because, you know, for, there's a trick I do. You know, I read it in uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade. But it works really well, which is the first day of shooting. Every single time I'm shooting a movie, first shot, I set up a shot, you know, Ryan Gosling walking into a building. It's not even in the script, right? You set up the shot. The crew is there. Ryan's there. And you go, ready and action. First day, first shot. They, they walk in, walk in the building. You go, great, cut, print, moving on. And uh, everybody goes like this, oh. And they take a step forward, you know, like, oh. <laughs> And that tells the actors, this is going to go. Yes. It tells the crew, this is going to move. I and love that. Changes. And I'm telling you, it works like gangbusters because the actors kind of go, you know, is it okay if I get another take? You go, <laughs> another take. But you That's want- a great, great trick. <laughs> because as an actor, if I know that the director I'm working with is going to do 40 takes, Ugh. then you're dogging it the first 10. Ugh. You're just like, you know, you're not paying attention. You're not grounding because- it's frustrating to do, you know, you try to do your best work and know that there's going to be 39 more versions of it, you know? And so, right. Yeah. Are you able to watch films that you've directed once they've come out? If you're flipping through and good night comes on or it's on the film I've directed, you know, I have a few, I can't and a few, I can, um, uh, you know, uh, I've been lucky because I haven't been pigeonholed. Sometimes it's because of lack of success. But I haven't been pigeonholed so much into the things I have to do. And so I'm able to sort of play around with different genres and things. Um, I will watch uh, like Good Night and Good Luck or Ides of March. Confessions are really fun to watch because I sort of knew them. And there's other ones that I've done that are trickier because I was trying something that I'm not sure worked. Uh, and when that happens, you, you, you watch it with a very different sort of jaundiced eye where you go, oh, God, I, I really wanted that to be a different kind of scene. I, you know, look, you take a big swing and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And so but I, you know, look, I uh, I'm, I've, I can be pretty clinical about stuff. I've had to as an actor. You know, you have to look at it and go, oh, man, I really missed that. Missed that beat. Missed that. And just move on. Essentially. Yeah. Huh. You have to. I mean. You know, the only thing you can do is learn from mistakes, you know. I mean, I, I never learned anything from success. You know, I didn't learn anything from 
good night and good luck, right? Because everything went well. It's such a great film, yeah. And, and everything, you know, it was really well received, but the film, we shot it in 23 days, you know? Wow. There's nothing to, there, there's no great lessons. You learn for lessons from things that were struggles to make and stuff didn't work ultimately. And you go, oh, that, that's what I can't do again. And I well, do you have any plans though to act in a film you don't direct or now that you're generally just directing it's, is Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually am looking at a couple of films right now. Ah. I like, I like working. I, I love acting when I'm right for it, mm -hmm. you know, and being right for it is trickier than you think as you get older. And, and, you know, I, um, there's a few guys that have found that niche, you know, Pitt's done it some, Hanks has done it some. It's harder, and Brad still looks like he's 25 years old, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but it's harder finding the projects that sort of, that you fit into. Uh, in a, really? In a, sure, yeah, because you can, you know, they'll go, you'll read the script, they'll say, yeah, he's a 42 year old, you go, yeah, that's not me. And so oftentimes you'll read things and go, okay, well, I mean, you listen, you had Jeff Bridges and, he was perfect for that role. I wrote it for him. Yeah, well, that's helps, yeah. you know. Um, doesn't but, always work out. I've written a couple for Bale, but there's sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't always work. But something. But the truth of the matter is, it's like uh, the 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 kind of work that you're interested in doing. Like the guy that the guy that if you look at and say, whose career would you like to emulate? Not that you could ever have his career because let me so guess for you. Because I always thought I would love to see George play something like Paul Newman in The Verdict. Paul Newman in The Verdict. That's exactly Were you going to say that? Yeah, that's the exact person I was going to say. The exact yeah. movie I was going to say. I love that film. Paul Newman was a leading man. And then, you know, he turns 50 and he looks around and he's like, I'm a character actor really now. And he does, a, he does The Verdict, which I think is his best performance. Like, uh, I would agree. Masterpiece of the film. And he's flawed and he's screwed up. And, you know, and you watch that. And you go, that's the direction he pushed his career towards then, which is those kind of parts and that kind of, and he took chances. Sometimes they didn't work again. Sometimes they did, but he took, he, he, he did really interesting stuff and you know, he focused on his, the rest of his life as well, which is part of the fun of being older in that world and being secure about it. So yeah, he's, he's the example of how to do it. You know, you look at it and you go, that's a really good example of how to, how to, age into your sort of the next phase in your career. Literally perfectly. I mean, yeah. look, George, you, you've directed seven films. You starred in countless others. You played Batman. I did, you, man. I played Batman. <laughs> I've no, heard people, you had a, people don't know a little, that. <laughs> a little success in the spirit business. I mean, apart from, you know, being the, the guy in the Dos Equis, most interesting person in the world, what's next for you? Like my dinner with Andre after doing a, a, a difficult epic? I mean, what's left for George Clooney? Well, we're doing, I'm actually directing a film. We're supposed to start, I'm going tomorrow to Boston and we're supposed to start shooting in late February. What's we're, the film? We're just kind of moving forward as if we're going to be able to, and we'll see what the gods say about COVID. Um, but it's a film called The Tender Bar with uh, Ben Affleck. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. It's a good script. And, oh. and you know, we, we have really wonderful actors in it. Chris Lloyd is going to come and do uh, play grandpa in it. And we have some really exciting. That's perfect for you. And, uh, and like really like, yeah. And it's small. And Are you going to be in it as well? No, no. There's nothing for me to do. Right. Um, there's no part for me really in it. And you know, well, there probably was a few years ago. 
No, no, not really. Cause these guys are, it's like the Sopranos. These guys are really sort of uh, hardcore East coast cats. And it doesn't really feel like something that I was ever the, the, the guy for, but mm. I having said that you were really excited to do it and it's a quick shoot. Um, but we'll see, you know, we're, we're go going ahead as if we're doing it and I'm hoping we're going to be able to do it, but you know, there's other things in the world that could uh, slow us down. There's roadblocks out there. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, I think if, if you have a great deal of testing and, and I'm sure you will, that, you know, a, a film set can be one of the safer places to be. Certainly if you're here in Los Angeles. Well, I mean, look at it this way. I, I, the budget on our film wasn't much. It's tiny budget, but COVID is uh, like half of our budget now, you know, which is, I think we're going to spend about $7 million just on COVID. Really? Yeah. So it's a big, you know, you got to test everybody almost every day. Um, so it's, and, and, you know, instead of getting one parking lot for, for your uh, uh, craft or for your lunch, you've got four parking lots, you know, so everything is, and, and the time it takes in between shots, because you could, you know, usually like, you know, you say cut and you're going to move on or you're cutting, let's do it again. Usually the hair makeup people come in, the, you know, the grips go to work, the gaffer goes to work, the cinematographer's in there. Now you have to do one at a time, come in, you know, and do it. So um, it's tricky. And so, you know, it, it does add a huge cost to, to the production, which mm. is, you know, a, a bit of a bummer, but, you know, we're hopefully going to be able to put a lot of people to work and go back to work, you know? Yeah. Good for you, man. Well, look, for, for, for someone who, uh, was an actor with an unremarkable career to, to see, you know, George, you as a wonderful actor and, and just a remarkable humanistic filmmaker. I, I, I look at your body of work, both in front and, and behind the camera with great admiration, man. And you're a wonderful guy. Scott, I really love your work. And, you know, it, that was a fun trip we had. Where were we going? Were we going to Toronto? Where were we going? Yes. Yeah, so let me just quickly tell the story for, for people who, who might find this interesting. So, I bummed a ride with George on his plane and I brought Joel Edgerton and, and the producer John Lesher with me. We were flying from New York City to Toronto and in what I can easily say was the worst turbulence of my life. I look over at John Lesher, all of the blood has drained from his face. Joel Edgerton is, is, is who, who's generally a very you know, tough guy and, and is kind of muttering to himself. Some of the Warner Brothers girls in the back are completely freaking out. George is standing up no seatbelt, leaning over the seat, chatting with me. And I literally thought we were going to die. It was like you were standing on your deck at home, just maybe having a glass of tequila. And, and I said to myself, I can see the headline, George Clooney perishes in, in, in plane crash, others also, on board. <laughs> also killed, yeah. No, <laughs> I remember that and I remember everybody was kind of pale white and I thought, well, it's a good, good time to calm everybody down. Um, because, you know, in general, the, the thing is, um, it was, I think it was the, um, it might've been the, uh, Sony plane we were on. And I remember, you know, talking to that pilot and he goes, it's like a, a boat on the water. It bounces around every once in a while. So I kept saying to, to Joel, it's like a boat on the, I just repeated everything. <laughs> the boat on the water. I always look. When, when I'm flying, if, if we're going through some serious turbulence at the flight attendants, because yeah. if they're completely calm and they're still going about their work, then you think, ah, all right, this is okay. Yeah. We had that on a flight to, um, 
uh, with Uma Thurman and, and uh, this is um, 1994, 95. Like and, and, and Chris O'Donnell was on it. We were going to get fitted for the bat suits and we had that same thing, like power failure on the Warner jet dropping like crazy and the flight attendant girl goes everybody get in the back of the plane facing backwards and you're like oh so this is how and i kept thinking so this is how it works you know i finally get a, a studio film and now the plane crashes little did i know that the the batman and robin was the thing that was actually going to crash oh my god ah oh, george is probably not nearly as bad as you think and and rest in peace joel schumacher what a lovely man he was such a big, by the way uh uh, also, Michael Apted died yesterday. Oh, I know. I didn't know he was, I, I guess, uh, I don't know if he was ill or not. I don't know what happened. But what a great, great guy. And what a wonderful man. And, and uh, what a loss for our union and for this group of, uh, of this, this, this fraternity and sorority of, of, uh, of directors to lose Michael Apted, who just was a you know, tremendous artist. So, you know, his son, Jim, was the first AC on three of my films and a really? lovely guy. And, and I got to know Michael and um, really yeah. uh, it's sad to, to see his passing. Yeah, it was a it surprise, was big surprise. I mean, it was really tough shocking. year, man. Yeah, it's been a, it was a tough year. We're going to we're getting through it, though. Look, we got a we got a vaccine coming. Guys, we're all going to everybody just be smart. We're going to, you know, for those of us not really old or essential workers, it's probably going to be may but we got a vaccine coming and we're going to be able you know you've got a film that's going to come out and you want it to be in front of uh in front of an actual audience and yes. that's going to happen it'll probably be you know end of the summer but it's coming well, let me ask you one last question yeah um do you feel as i do that people are going to race back to cinemas when it's safe sure people gotta get, people you know i remember Eddie Murphy used to do this routine about the day that they found the cure for AIDS. And he goes, and everybody's going to be f everybody. <laughs> you can't get laid that that day. You can't get laid. Right. He did a whole bit about it. the day that, you know, that, that it's really all clear with the vaccines and, you know, everything else. Everybody's going to get out of that. I mean, are you kidding? People are going to like run out of the house. It's like when the sun comes out in London and every Brit runs outside. <laughs> You know, it's, it's going to be exactly like that. And, oh, man. and you know, people want to be in a collective. You want to see a comedy with other people. You want to see a scary movie with other people. You want yeah. to be in a group of people. You want to go out. You can't keep saying to your wife, let's stay home. Jesus. Oh, no, I want to live again. But we're going to get there. You know, it's it, it, the, the fact that we have this vaccine as quick as we do. And, you know, I have great faith that the Biden administration is going to federalize the the this distribution and that'll be a big difference in how quickly we get it out and then you know i have great hope that that you know by certainly by uh the end of the summer i think that people will be able to go see films again which i would really i think we all amen. would appreciate amen well george thank you so much for your time i love the film thank good you. luck on uh, tinder bar it's thank a you, wonderful piece and yeah. uh, i hope to see you soon man yeah man thank you it's really good to see you have fun. You too, George. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 
Music is by Dan Wally. 